I'm Jeff Cohen. Harvey Herbert grew up Jewish, but his family was so secular that he actually has memories of opening presents under a Christmas tree. A traumatic incident in a hospital, plus some divine breadcrumbs from Hashem, completely alter the path of his Jewish journey. Let's find out what happened. Harvey, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And first off, we have to thank Rabbi Newbord, who brought us together and made this intro happen. Yes, actually, Rabbi Newbord taught me Aleph Base starting in 1999. I didn't know anything until I met him, so I'm deeply indebted to him. That is a good way to start, to thank the people who uh, have helped us on our journey and also brought us together for this interview. But let's take it from the top and get to know you a little bit. So where were you born and raised? I was born on Rosh Kota Shavat, 1951, which was January 8th, in uh, Long Island City, Astoria, Queens. And how would you describe your family from a Jewish religious perspective in those early years? There was uh, virtually no uh, religion. Uh, My parents never went to synagogue. There was no Rosh Hashanah, no Yom Kippur, no Pesach. There was no observance at all. The only thing, and we had, as you mentioned, we had a tree on December 25th. They called it a Hanukkah bush. My mother took me to Santa Claus at Macy's. They did light a menorah on Hanukkah. And if I remember right, my mother put out some matzahs on the first day of Pesach, but that was it. There was no, absolutely no religious observance whatsoever. So did your parents ever explain to you why they were doing some of these Jewish things and some things that are really more closely aligned with Christmas? No, it was never discussed. I mean, you knew you were Jewish, right? Both of your parents were Jewish, so you you knew that was your identity. How did you feel about the fact you were doing things that crossed over religions? As a young child, I really didn't, I don't know, it didn't really come to my mind. Uh, You know, I I barely knew what being Jewish was. I mean, I knew I was Jewish. I know a little bit about Israel. My grandparents spoke Yiddish, but I really didn't quite understand what being Jewish was. Were there other families in your neighborhood that were on the same level of Jewish observance as you, like following basically the same traditions? Were you all doing more or less the same thing? Like, did you have friends that you played with and you were noticing the same thing within the different houses? Well, no. In other words, uh, we grew up, it was mixed where I lived. It was majority Gentile, but quite a few Jewish people. Nobody else had a Christmas tree. Everybody else uh, went to synagogue on the high holidays. Everybody else had a bar mitzvah besides me. So we were kind of unique in that way. So you didn't have a bar mitzvah. You must have noticed when when you got to that age and a lot of your friends were starting to have them, was there any conversation about, hey, maybe I should do something similar? Or like, how did that play out within your family? It was a very brief discussion and uh, it just ended very quickly. It was barely mentioned. And then I can't give you the exact words, but it was sort of put aside as something that uh, was not going to happen. Did you have any thoughts when you went to friends bar mitzvahs, like seeing them celebrate, thinking, oh, this would be nice, or maybe I should have this for my own family, or did you just enjoy the other parties you went to? No, I felt a little left out. My parents weren't very approachable when it came to discussing things like this. So even though you weren't going to shul or having a bar mitzvah, from the conversation we had before the interview, it sounds like they still did do a few things that were connecting you to Judaism that made you know that you were Jewish. What were some of those things? Well, my mother was a member of the B'nai B'rith, My father, who was a New York City policeman, was a member of the Shamram Society, the Jewish police fraternal organization. And if I recall correctly, at one point, he was also a member of the Jewish war veterans because he was a World War II Marine. And and they were definitely uh, cognizant and supportive of Israel. So did that rub off on you? Like I would think when parents are modeling some of these things by being connected to Jewish organizations, did that instill something in you at a young age, what your parents were doing? Well, I mean, I was aware of it. I mean, I was too young to really get involved in organizations. 
I mean, the first thing that really raised my Jewish consciousness was the Eichmann trial. The 1961 Adolf Eichmann was uh, taken from Argentina and put on trial, and we used to get the New York Times in school, and we read, and I read, these uh, gruesome accounts of what had happened. And it had a, a very, very strong impact on me because I was very struck by this force, these people that would want to kill me and that killed, you know, these vast numbers of people. It was just a shock and a, a wake-up call. It was the first time being Jewish became something prominent in my mind. It got me to think that there must be something very important about being Jewish if people want to destroy you. So you have this experience when you're 10 of seeing this trial, and now you're entering into the teen years, the high school years. Are you starting to think about what you might want to do for a living? Are you thinking career, or are you just going through high school and not really knowing what you might want to be? Well, I went to Stuyvesant High School, and I always wanted to be a lawyer. You know, my father was, like I say, was a policeman. My mother had been a legal secretary before she had children, and I had an uncle who was a, a, a prominent lawyer. So being a lawyer was something that formed in my mind very early. But at the same time, you're in high school, so you're, you're finishing high school and are you going to college? Where do you go and what do you have in mind as far as setting you up to then go to law school? Well, if I can backtrack slightly, in Stuyvesant, that was when the 67 war occurred. Mm -hmm. And that was a, just a amazing revelation. Uh, I think every Jew at that time, or almost every Jew, saw it as a miracle. I certainly did. And we went around with our transistor radios, listening all day to what was happening. And that was an awe-inspiring event. I think uh, those people who are not old enough to remember that may not fully understand how game-changing that was. It seemed like, for sure, an act from Hashem. It was a miracle. It was incredibly inspirational. It was just a tremendous awakening. So these are the breadcrumbs I was talking about in the introduction. You have the trial you watched, and you have the war that you're following. So these are giving you little pieces of understanding what it means to be Jewish. But we're not yet at the point where this is going to take shape in terms of you becoming more observant or taking a, a bigger interest in Judaism. It seems like these are just little sparks when you're at a younger age. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think I remember when I was in Stuyvesant a little later going to rallies for Soviet Jewry. And in Stuyvesant, it was probably about half Jewish, so that was certainly a lot of influence of other Jewish young men. There was no women at that time in the school, unfortunately. And I think I followed the Zionist path of my parents, being very supportive of the Jewish people's right to their own country and survival. So given your interest in the country, you're kind of at that age where a lot of people go to Israel for the first time. So did you end up taking a trip during that period of your life? Well, yeah, and uh, my fa unfortunately, my father got ill and died in 1971 at a very young age. It was a pretty horrible experience, but right after he died, yes, I went to Israel in the summer of 71, and that was amazing. I um, got interested in biblical archaeology, which is something that has uh, been a passion of mine ever since. And uh, when I went to Israel and saw these archaeological sites, I had a mindset that this was sort of... Uh, a fiction, that this was a, a legend, like King Arthur, you know, or something like that. But then when I saw that, yes, there was a King Solomon, there was a King David, there was a monarchy, there was a Jewish country there, I was uh, blown away. Why did you decide to go to Israel in the first place? Like, we mentioned that you went, but what motivated you to go? Was it connected to your father passing, or those were just coincidental? No, I think that I was looking for some sort of uh, solace or 
So I can't, I don't know if I could express it in words, but there was, yeah, I think there was a yearning for some sort of spirituality or answer. I don't know. I, I can't really express it too well in words, but I think losing my father uh, had motivated me to go to Israel, yes. So you just said how going to Israel had perhaps a connection to your father passing and you're, you're searching and seeking, and that might have sounded like somebody who goes to Israel and then has like a religious awakening, but it seems like you went and got connected to Judaism through archaeology as opposed to thinking you want to become observant. Is that right? Absolutely. Well, it was also I was getting college credits, which I needed. It was during the Vietnam War. I didn't want to get drafted. I want to make sure I had my credits. So that was a motivation. And uh, yeah, I was searching. I didn't know what I was searching for, but I certainly felt a sense of law. Well, obviously loss and yearning and looking for some direction. And of course, you know, like I said, we, I grew up in a Zionist background and it was not long after the 67 war and I wanted to see the miracle firsthand. So you got a chance to do that and then you come back from Israel and you pick up your plans to become a lawyer? Well, I was, yeah, I was in college at the time. Actually, I went back in 1972. The next year, some friends of mine were on Kibbutzim and I went to visit them there. Yeah, I mean, I was in, I was in college, undergraduate and uh, planning to go to law school, which I did in 1975 when I got admitted to Brooklyn Law School, yes. And what kind of lawyer did you want to be? I don't know if I really had a formulation at that point. I always was interested in criminal law. In my career, I've done various things. I've gone from some personal injury litigation, commercial litigation, criminal law. I've sort of uh, gone back and forth to different uh, types. So you get your law degree and you start practicing, and what's the first job you get? What's the first kind of law that you practice? Yeah, the first job I got, I was an attorney for the Legal Aid Society for a few years, criminal division. And then I went out in private practice with a partner, and we did both civil and criminal. Uh, we no longer partners, and I've been on my own for a while. And so as we continue this theme of breadcrumbs from Hashem, there's a story that happens that's pretty traumatic for you involved going to a hospital. So can you share that story of how that connects you to Judaism further? Absolutely. It's an amazing story. This was in 1974 when I was in law school. And I was a bit of a wild guy, and we went to a party, and I got very, very intoxicated and actually passed out. So some friends, or should I say maybe ex-friends, I'm kidding, took me to a hospital in Brooklyn, in Crown Heights, which, thank God, it's closed. It was a horror story. And uh, they bring me to the emergency room, and they first thing they do is they pump my stomach to try, I guess they're trying to find if there's any internal bleeding. And the doctor, it go, they pump, it pump your stomach, it goes into a flask through a tube, and the doctor drops the flask on the floor. Now, if anybody's been through a, uh, had their stomach pumped, it's not something you want done twice, that I can assure you. Anyway, the doctor takes the chemicals and uh, throws them on the floor with the contents of my stomach and starts saying, everything's okay, everything's okay. And I start freaking out, because I said these people are gonna kill me. Uh, they bring me up to a room with uh, three gentlemen who were uh, less than friendly, let's put it that way. And uh, I was crying. Nobody would come visit me. It was in a very bad area at that time. The 70s were very dangerous. And it was, uh, it was Hanukkah. And all of a sudden, three angels, three Lubavitch boys, came into my room. Are you Jewish? Yeah. And they lit the Hanukkah candles for me and wished me well. And it went right to my heart. I, I really, I just, I was just overwhelmed with their kindness and the fact that they walked all the ways to this hospital just to visit a Jew. I'm sure I was the only Jew in the place. And uh, 
it got me thinking. What did it get you thinking about? That, you know, here these religious Jews, you know, these were Hasidic boys, Lubavitch boys with hats and beards and all that. They were just so kind and so um, caring, and they obviously believed in what they were doing. They had obviously had very strong beliefs to do this, and I was very impressed. I was very impressed. And so I imagine you ultimately recover from this incident in the hospital, and you, and you get to leave. And so how does your story continue? Oh, I, walk, I, didn't, I walked out. The next morning, as soon as the sun came up, I, I didn't check out. I walked out <laughs> because I was afraid that I wouldn't come out of there alive. So, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I left. And uh, like I say, it had a great impression on me. But I was still very, very timid or uncomfortable with any kind of religious things. You know, it just seemed so alien to me. It really just felt too far and too uncomfortable. So I, I didn't really do anything about it at that point. And then you mentioned earlier about your father passing away at a young age, and something also happens with your mother now at this point yeah, in the story? Few, yeah, unfortunately, tragically, a few years later, she also passed away. Also at a very young age, had a horrible disease. And uh, obviously that had a profound effect on me. And I believe you told me, as we're getting to know each other, that where your parents are buried gave you another connection to Judaism, right? Yeah, as it turned out, the Shamram, the Jewish police, their plot uh, is right by the uh, where the Lubavitcher Rebbe is now. So at that time, he was still alive, but his father-in-law, the prior Rebbe, was buried there. And every year, I used to go there to uh, visit my parents' grave, and I would get one of these Lubavitch guys to come and say, I guess it was to Hillam. I didn't know what it was at the time, but I used to ask them to say prayers and give them a few shekels, but uh, they didn't ask for it, but I would give and uh, so that was like the first religious act I ever did in my life, even though I was doing it through another person. <laughs> but I felt some need to do something spiritual for their souls, I guess you could say. So you're not yet becoming observant, but you had talked about in Israel finding this love for archaeology. So does that passion continue to grow during this time of your life? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It grew and grew and grew. And I became a collector. And if I can fast forward... I have the largest collection of ancient Hebrew inscriptions in the United States. It's in the uh, Living Torah Museum in Brooklyn, uh, which everybody is invited to visit. I have inscriptions from King Hezekiah, King Ahaz, King Yechanan. I have the most important collection in the United States. It's been written up in books, articles, Jerusalem Post, Jewish Week, you name it. For people who would be interested in learning more about the archaeological collection you have and want to visit all these amazing things that you've gathered over the years, how can they get information? How could they set up a tour? All right, very simple. It's uh, the Living Torah Museum. It's located in Borough Park, Rabbi Shimon Shal Deitch. But uh, all they have to do is Google the Living Torah Museum, and uh, they can make an appointment. It's an appointment-only uh, museum, and the tours are absolutely fantastic. We've had probably eight or 900,000 tours already. Wow. And, oh, yeah, 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 it's like in the last 20 years, of course. Most of the yeshivas, orthodox yeshivas go there, and uh, I guarantee people will not be disappointed. So, so far we've heard all these different ways that you're getting connected to Judaism, but we haven't yet gotten to the idea that something impacts you in a way that you think about becoming observant. So where is that turning point where these breadcrumbs turn into you taking some action? Yeah, I mean, periodically I go to Israel, and it was in 1999... Uh, I was 48 at the time, and I'm with a group of very secular Jews, to say the least, 
and we go to the wall, and some guy comes up to me, I think he was Lubavitch also, and he talks about putting on tefillin. Now, I, I don't even know if I knew what tefillin was at that point, but I decided it was a great photo op. You know, like when you go to Disneyland, you put on a Mickey Mouse uh, hat, uh, a hat mask or something. Anyway, so I put on tefillin and a talus, and I took a picture, and uh, I was very uh, amused, because I never put on tefillin and a talus in my life. It had a very big effect on me. I would say, you know, more subconscious than conscious. So I came back to New York, and then I'm in my office, and these Lubavitch boys would knock on my you know, door on Friday, and usually I would tell them to go away, but I said, no, no, come on in. And they put on tefillin, and they told me you know, to say Shema Israel. I said, I don't know any Hebrew. And they actually directed me to Rabbi Newport, who was then in Brooklyn Heights here, where I live. He was the second rabbi at the shul here. And he was just so kind and, and just so, made me so comfortable. And he taught me Hebrew over, you know, uh, I used to go eight o'clock in the morning and uh, I started with children's books and so on. And uh, it just got me going and uh, I haven't stopped since. So what do you think inspired you when you think about the fact that you're at the wall and even you describe putting on the tefillin as a photo op, that doesn't sound like someone who's thinking about going on a journey to becoming observant. What is it that when you came back and you had the, the boys coming into your office, that in that particular moment you were open to meeting Rabbi Newboard and taking classes and learning? What, what got you hooked in in that moment? Well, the way, best way I can answer that is that every Jew has what they call a pentaliyid. Every Jew has a spark of holiness, and it just takes some, let's call it combustible material, to get it from a spark to a fire. Something hit me. Something at the wall with that talus and tefillin on. Something came over me. A spirit. Uh, I can't really. You. I don't know how. I don't know if I have the precisely the right words to use, but some energy entered my soul and led me in that direction. So then, when you start taking classes and you mention reading children's books and learning Hebrew. That could also just be an exercise intellectually, like you want to learn more about Judaism, you want to learn how to read Hebrew. It doesn't necessarily have to be the beginning of becoming observant. So as you were starting those things, did you have in your mind that you were going to continue to take on things, or did it just begin as something that you wanted to maybe fill in a piece of your life you'd never learned about? Yeah, the latter. I mean, it, you know, it started off like, I just wanted to learn how to say Shema Israel for some reason. And then it evolved, and I started feeling a yearning to get close to God. So then does he introduce this idea of, by the way, you could be eating kosher, you could be keeping Shabbos. When does he start talking about these things with you? Well, I can't remember exactly, but yeah, I mean, I, I start, he didn't, he, he was very, one thing, he was very non-judgmental and very non-pushy. And he sort of let me go on my own way. So first I stopped eating trafe. You know, I didn't go kosher right away. I stopped eating pork and shrimp and all that stuff that I shouldn't have been eating in the first place. And uh, then I think I occasionally would... Oh, I went to other synagogues uh, around the city, checking it out. And then it just was step by step. As I learned more, you know, also I had to get familiar with not only Hebrew, but the services, the, you know, the, 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 the uh, siddur, Jewish customs, Jewish davening. You know, I knew, knew virtually nothing. So that was also an education that I, that I undertook. Which parts of it did you find easier or harder as you learned about the different aspects of being observant? Well, kosher was very easy. Shabbos was pretty easy. I started to like the fact, no phones, nothing but uh, spirituality on Shabbos. 
I guess, uh, first of all, learning how to daven was a, a challenge. You know, because I didn't know, you know, learning Hebrew well enough to start to daven, I cut my work schedule short to spend time learning, and it just grew on me. And what impact did it have on being a lawyer, the fact that you are now observant? Did it change the way you practice law? Well, I'm closed on Shabbos. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and actually that was a worry because at one time that was like the day people would come in with their fees, you know. And I was worried about that. But, uh, Hashem, you know, they come on another day. <laughs> and uh, leaving early on Friday, I thought that would be rough. But most, you know, not, I shouldn't say most, uh, people, rest- I have no problem. Here, especially in Brooklyn, of course, we have such a large population. So it really uh, didn't become a problem. Also, uh, I used to get a lot of calls from rabbis, young boys in trouble, go to court, help them out. So that also became part of my life, uh, helping drug addicts and uh, young kids who were in trouble, not only getting them out of their legal problems, hopefully, but also uh, trying to get them guidance to turn their lives around. And in a few cases, Baruch Hashem, I was, I was very successful. So did it happen that you were living near an Orthodox shul, that you didn't have to move? Because often one of the steps is having to move to a place that's walking distance to a shul, but maybe you were already there by just luck of where you happened to be living? Correct. There was an Orthodox shul only a few blocks from my house, and that was just Hashkaka Pradis, divine Pradis. <laughs> And we talked about earlier the fact that you didn't have a bar mitzvah. Did you get to make good on that later yes, in Yes, yes. In ni- 2006, actually 2006, I joined, uh, I was in the Israeli army as a volunteer because that was during the Lebanon War. And then I came back and I had my bar mitzvah in Crown Heights. I read the whole Haftorah. And my brother came, his wife. It was quite an achievement and uh, a very memorable occasion. And it, it also helped me heal, I guess you could say, the loss or the feelings of being left out when I was 13. So I was 55, but uh, it was still great. And so as somebody who started off with a Hanukkah bush in your house, and now you've come all the way to being observant, what are you focused on over the next, say, three to five years as you continue to grow? Well, I don't know. I guess, uh, you know, go from strength to strength to increase my Torah study and knowledge, increase my... Um, Zedaka, my, my tefillah, uh, just to go you know, higher and higher. Very nicely said. So we're going to close our interview now with the lightning round. I'm going to ask you a few super fast questions. Are you ready? Sure. All right. So you mentioned this interest you have in archaeology. What would you say is the most interesting or famous piece that you have in your collection? I have an actual seal or a seal impression of Cheskiahu Melech. It says, Cheskiahu ben Achav Melech Shel Yehuda. Hezekiah, son of Achaz, who was his father, king of Judah. It's the actual seal impression of him. I have a, a large jug that says Lamel Chevron, which was issued by him, and it's the only one in the world that's still intact. The Israel Museum doesn't have this. I have all the weights mentioned in the Torah, the, the shekel, the gera, uh, the beka. I have an actual inscription that's on a seal impression that says Sar Ha'ir in he, ancient Hebrew means governor of the city. And what it shows is a king of Judah, probably uh, Hezekiah of Manasseh, his son, handing the arrows to the governor of the city. It's the only depiction we'll ever have, of, that anybody has, of a king of Judah. Okay, last question. If you were walking down the street tomorrow and you happened to run into those three boys who visited you in the hospital, what would you say to them? I would say, God bless them. And I would say to them that one can do a mitzvah and never really understand the unbelievable impact it has. 
I mean, I, I, there's no way I could ever track down these boys. I've tried, but there's just no way. And I think everybody should understand that when one does a mitzvah, like they did, that transformed my life. So everybody should be, including myself, should be motivated to do as many mitzvahs as possible and not be deterred by not seeing the instant results or ever seeing the results. Harvey, that is a beautiful one to end on. You are out of the lightning round, and I want to thank you for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. It's been a pleasure, and everybody should have a great Shabbos. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at TachlisMedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.